Chapter 18 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter 18 The Mistress of Novices. O oh, rash one, pause and learn my name. I know not love, nor hate, nor ruth. I am that heart of frost or flame which burns with one desire the truth. Thou shalt indeed be lifted up on wings like mine twixt sea and sky, but canst thou drink with me my cup, and canst thou be baptized as I? The cup I drink can only rouse the thirst it slakes not, like the sea, and lo, my own baptismal brows must be their own Gethsemane. W. H. Malloch, The Veil of the Temple during the ensuing days, Constance perceived with astonishment the unchanged demeanor of visible things. Like most neophytes of the mysteries, she had vaguely expected them to react to the incredible conditions in which, with her, they were now placed. For the second time in her experience, the walls of the world had been broken. Once they had given way before the assault of a supersensual curiosity. Now, they were dissolved by the presence of a relic, a symbol, wherein unimaginably personality and idea were brought to a point and pierced as a flaming sword the barriers of time and space. A terrible and starry perfection dwelt with her now, yet such was the stubborn quality of the dream that the shabby room, the shabby daily life, were much as usual, the long exhausting hours of work, the cheap and hasty lunch, two poached eggs in a penny roll, eaten amidst the perennial crumbs and cocoa stains of a thriving tea-shop, the homeward tramp through the sodden streets, the grate which smoked persistently since the northerly winds had set in, the pile of mending with which she could never keep up. All these things were still there in the forefront of her consciousness. The strange light which shone in her home did not alter their values. They appeared insensible to its rays. Even Vera, as recalcitrant to spiritual forces as the least animate of things, seemed unaware of any change in her environment. The snowy season had added a chronic cold in the head to her usual disabilities, and she took full advantage of this weakness in pressing her claims upon attention and indulgence. She spoke greedily and persistently of Christmas, and mentioned the exact profit in food and toys which the landlady's children usually extracted from this celebration of holy poverty. "'I've used five hankies today, as well as all the times I did without, and hundreds of sniffling. Billy had a little gun last Christmas, one you can hurt with when it shoots. Tante, can't I have a little gun? What would you do with it? Hit things! Billy hit a puppy, and it bled. That was cruel. Don't care, said Vera. I want to hit things, and cats and sparrows. Do let me have a gun and try to shoot. We will see. Oh, I know about seeing, cried Vera, stormily. The toys you see about are the ones that never come. I want to shoot. I want to hit things like a boy. 
Say I'll have a gun, or else I'll suck paint off my soldiers and be sick when you isn't here. Santa Claus, said Constance, with authority, brings whatever he likes. People have to take what they get and say thank you, else he does not come at all another year. Vera muttered rebelliously, Billy says there ain't no Santa Claus. Nevertheless, she was half convinced and retreated. The watcher, contemplating the scene, said, Strange, yet I suppose that this also has its place in the idea. Constance exclaimed, Yes, but where, but how? Where is the beauty, the love, and the law? I want a link, a guide, he answered. Is it not here? It was, but because she could not apprehend it, it exasperated her. She stood, as it seemed, outside the true field of its power, perceiving the light, dazed by it indeed, but untouched by those chemical rays whose fringe reached the watcher, were received by him with so humble a thankfulness. He said to her with disappointment, I had thought that it would have made you very happy that the real might have solved the discords of the dream. But since it does not, I think you had best leave it alone. From the depths of her spirit another voice replied, I cannot. Far better, he said. It is not for you. It does not belong to your world. I see that now. I had forgotten it. The stir and effervescence of this life are against an understanding of its quietness. You must wait for the settlement of death. It belongs to us, it calls us, it awaits our knowledge. You cannot cope with it from the midst of the dream. The inner voice answered, If we cannot, why is it here? Some of you may. To do so you must leave all else, I think, and go away, as Martin did, into a secret place where there can be no scattering of your love. But you hate solitude, and this is a solitary's affair. So leave it alone, until you die. Turn to the life that you wished for, for which your body was built. That is best. Try your own recipe. Be happy with the other little creatures. I wish you to be happy. In this, too, there may be some secret elixir, some syrup of truth. I will help you. You shall forge links and join with the others, as that man and woman did who looked at each other with so quiet and strange a joy. We will put the difficulties away. I see them where you cannot. I am determined to undertake your life. She listened to him with astonishment, for he seemed at this moment almost human. He had moved far from his old attitude of arrogance, impatience, curiosity, he spoke as some generous parent, some indulgent friend might speak to a weaker comrade, to a dear and petted child, forbidding, for very kindness' sake, the austere and honourable quest, and offering in its place the pleasant valleys, with all that they held of homely, dulcet life. He was for the hills. He longed for them, and she knew it, but because of his friendship, he would forego them yet a little. He was on her side in this, for her immediate happiness, for all the human cares and pleasures that she loved. It was the irony of the situation that this eagerness, this sympathy in him, 
provoked in Constance's mind no gratitude, but rather a stubborn opposition, an unwilling opposition which, though it hurt her, she could not suppress. It was forced on her by that inner inhabitant of hers, the tiresome, unaccommodating thing whose waking moments she had learned to dread. In the presence of the cup this dweller of the innermost kept, as it seemed, incessant vigil. It, too, loved, reverenced life, fertile, strenuous life, but loved it as a pilgrim loves the highway, not as an animal desires its lair. Where she, with the watcher's approval, would have lingered, it was for a forward march. Whither? It could not tell her, could only cry, On, on, where the watcher now said, Rest, enjoy, be passive, do not seek to understand. No use, she said to him then, to try to understand it, I cannot, but I feel the pressure nonetheless. Is not your normal chance of pain, love, death, and loneliness enough for you? He answered, Must you share our torment, too? I can never rest until I know the idea in its fullness, because it is my end. I have but a forced option, to suffer or to understand. I think that is what you mean by heaven and hell. But why add this burden to your own, poor blinded little prisoner of the dust? Prisoner within the dream, said the imperious voice again. But when the dream is over, what? Time enough for that, observed the watcher. Here you are conditioned by it. It is the will. Since you cannot annihilate your selfhood, it is best to accept its limitations. Live, run to and fro, enjoy your toys. The urgent voice replied, Too late. I have been set upon the road. I will help you to turn back. Once, said the voice, you were for my liberation. You saw its possibility and urged on me its joy. You mocked at her blindness, condemned her transitory toys. I did not love her then. Tis a short-sighted love. You taught it, said the watcher. Tossed between these combatants, Constance found but little enjoyment in the position in which she was placed. Whilst they fought, the cup reigned in its silence, and she recognized in it the true arbiter of her fate. She had taken it grudgingly, determined, if she might, to defend herself against its assault. Now there began to happen to her one of the most disconcerting of all experiences, the steady pressure of an influence which is purer than oneself. Soon she realized that it is vain to desire to sit in darkness once one has assumed the guardianship of a great light. That light pierced the doors which hid its material symbol. It grew unawares upon her consciousness. She began to understand something of the mood of those old mystics who imagined in the flaming chalice the utmost secret of their love. The interests, the values of temporal life slid from her as she gazed at it, so softly that she knew not they had gone. Her will, her vision, were chained upon this point where she looked on the eternal self-renewing of that creative agony which is the only fruitfulness. From its midst, as from the midst of a furnace, a voice cried to its mate, and there was that 
within her which answered the call through the window of the grail through the sad colours the cloudy faulty glass she now gazed upon that ocean of reality that soundless sea whose waves had teased and buffeted her blinded soul she was gathered to a contemplation of that still activity she felt the searching tide of that inexorable yet compassionate love she was of it and within it saw in the mental light that bathed it the tiny and various flotilla of life as it moved upon the quiet bosom of eternity the very foundations of its being submerged and supported in these mighty and unsuspected deeps all the pageant of creation was shown to her then as in a picture the beautiful the cruel the sublime the obscene she saw the plants in their still and lovely acts of worship the vivid marvels of dappled beasts and glancing birds soft fur and sharp talons clash and encounter hatred and joy life bred them cast them forth and claimed their dust she saw the teeming poor maimed bodies stifled spirits blinded eyes patiently stubbornly starving and breeding the cross-bearers of the race she saw their rare brethren the toilers of the spirit enduring all anguish that they might give birth to an idea she saw the wise and the foolish the dreamer and the worker the creedless and the credulous critic fanatic artist those who went log over taffrail and sextant in hand and those who voyaged without reckoning sailing because they must she saw also the crowded aimless vessels behind them drifting inert before the kindly breeze seen thus the thing had an amazing aspect of simplicity an air amidst all its fussiness the trimming of canvas the eccentricities of the helm of moving towards one inevitable end one wind filled all the sails though each wide swinging compass might give it a different name to be faithful to their chosen course was plainly the one duty of these navigators to steer by their sealed instructions each one of them however bizarre the evolutions which those secret papers might ordain in the terror wonder and majesty of that voyage each sailing spirit on exploration bent yet homeward bound courage was seen as the supreme virtue of the seaman the demands of the individual the mean and peevish cry for pleasure self-expression for smooth waters favouring tides sank to nothingness she looked deeper considering her own life her own path upon that sea she studied it dispassionately glancing backwards as it were upon her wake she saw it began with daring and high courage the setting forth upon the crest of an erratic wave which had carried her far into the deep then she saw the long and solitary days in the rough waters the constant effort the monotony the fatigue and then the twisted course which she had tried to snatch at a chance of smoother going when she had disguised her flag that she might range with companionships and leave her isolated voyage 
in the cold pure light of the cup in the great vision of the measureless spaces these natural and human actions these concealments adjustments little tackings to and fro in search of consorts comforts change suddenly took on an unendurable aspect of meanness to choose your course and forsake it she saw this as the unforgivable sin she had called life her goddess she had dared to take rank as a worshipper at that shrine yet her behaviour toward life had been against all the canons of divine courtesy honesty says richard roll is mistress of the novices it was honesty who now stood before this postulant and her scourge was in her hand she said to herself i knew when i took it that something would happen but this that i should have to pay now so cruelly so late what now said the watcher are you not satisfied yet no i can't go on being comfortable and dishonest it shames me i have got to go straight straight no concealments tell the past well what then is that also a grief it is hell it's final it cuts me off then don't do it i must she exclaimed it's my way my path i have got to go on i can't bear this accusing light it is too pure too cold but it burns me but how strange an idea he said that you should mind showing the other little creatures the actions of your past mere things that you have done impulses of the mind and movements of the body these surely have no importance once they are complete yesterday's dinner is digested now it does not count any more it reveals the taste that chose it i suppose and i am different because i ate it my make-up is changed but people know you see you said the watcher does a description of the processes that you have passed through alter that result she answered sadly it does for some of them and that is why one has to tell but these actions of the past these things that made you they are in the idea they are aspects of the real so why fear to reveal them at the utmost you do but reveal the making of your soul i don't wish to reveal it then do as you wish keep silence and be happy no i must not you shall he opposed her flung against her determination his strange and lawless will she fought under it with a sense of wild triumph in thus meeting him setting at last the purest flame of her humanity its justice dignity and truth against the contemptuous love which counted these things as nothing if by chance they jeopardized her present ease she was going to give up that ease to give up everything in existence that she cared for she was in the act of expelling from her life all friendship dainty pleasure social joy the one way of escape from the hateful sordid round in this exalted moment she was glad nothing counted now nothing at all against the supreme necessity of orienting herself to that cold adorable and all-compelling light 
The watcher said to her, How strong you are today, and how foolish! Why should you wreck your little peace for that which you can neither see nor know? It was the obstinate dweller of the innermost who answered, Blind obedience is as much my business as loving vision is yours. I cannot understand you, he said again, nor the meaning of this thing which you would do. Time is a dream, and your passage through it is illusion. All that exists is you within your now. Where, then, is the importance of your past? One may have done things in it that the world thinks wrong. Wrong? What is wrong? said the watcher. She turned from him to the shrine again, as if she would extort from it some consolation, a promise that should carry her through the bitter waters toward which she was set. But the light for her was cold, inexorable. It called her on, but only that she might share an inheritance of pain. As the Red Cross called the crusader to the plague-stricken ship, the parched desert, shipwreck, misery, and thirst, but gave no certain promise of the holy city at the end. When she was out in the street and the door was shut on her, when she waited for the blue and orange omnibus which went once in ten minutes to the corner of the terrace in which the Vinces lived, there came on her the natural revolt against the destiny which seemed so determined to wreck her temporal content, whilst offering no eternal compensation. It was Sunday afternoon. The streets seemed stagnant. A respectable ennui brooded about the shuttered shops. It was that awful hour in which the city ceases her courtship of visible things, to discover that she knows no fairer love to take their place. Constance felt herself to be doomed, just such a condition, to a perpetual wandering, in silence broken only by the muffin-bell, down grey and muddy roads, between blank walls and prosperous houses, which sheltered happy people from the world. She did not want to do it. It was forced on her, as Sunday is forced on an unwilling population in the interest of an ideal which she could not accept. She reviewed the situation, looking for some mitigating circumstance, some opportunity of an honourable compromise with fate. She began to reassure herself, remembering Muriel's liberal point of view, that openness of mind which was ready to receive all things, even at the cost of retaining none. Her insistence on the true dignity of womanhood, the importance of individual concepts of life. Muriel, who loathed conventional standards of morality, would feel bound to pretend a certain sympathy, or at least to say that she understood. All then might be well. Courage and honesty vindicated, at a trifling cost. These considerations upheld her during the journey, and she rang the bell with alacrity, almost with cheerfulness when she arrived. Muriel received her graciously. She was alone, and sat as usual upon the floor by the white-tiled hearth where a small wood-fire was burning. Her slight and charming figure composed well against the Persian rugs, the pale, unbroken surface of the wall. Her wheat-coloured hair shone and flickered, as if it were infected by the spirit of the flames. Constance, big and solid, heavily and plainly dressed, 
determined upon a hateful sincerity, depressed and very tired, was conscious of the absurdity of her encounter with this dear and pretty thing, this adorable butterfly which she was about to place upon the judgment seat. "'I am so glad,' said Muriel as she entered, "'that you came in this afternoon. You have saved me from writing you a note, and in the stress of this terrible season one is always grateful for that. Is not the tyranny of Christmas one of the least desirable legacies bequeathed to us by our ancestors over beliefs?' Constance, obsessed by her horrible errand, full of fear now that the moment was so nearly come, longed only for immediate opportunity of speech. She also wished to kiss Muriel before it was forever too late. Instead she sat down and replied vaguely and calmly, "'It is a busy time.' "'One does not regret the expenditure of energy, for energy is always beautiful in some way. One feels that.' and the celebration of a birth a fatherless birth seen in the light of our modern concepts it might well be the typical feast of womanhood yes said constance eagerly yes it might i'm so glad you think that i felt sure but the acquisitive faculty of man has seized on it continued muriel and there its poison lies it has become a festival of greed of our most materialistic instincts. Our intellect may revolt, but tradition addresses itself to the subliminal mind, and there meets a too willing response. Is it not degrading? Do you know that I, yes, even I, have felt forced to send away six hampers and several dozen picture postcards this year? Constance refused to be deflected. I wanted to see you if I could before Christmas came, she said, to tell you something that I... Muriel interrupted again. I hoped that perhaps you would come to us for Christmas, she observed, unless you were engaged to other friends. In fact, I was going to write to you tonight. I haven't mentioned it to Andrew yet, but I know that he will be pleased, too. He was telling me that you lived in a furnished room, and I felt sure you would find a certain difficulty in getting your meals at such a time. Here we shall, of course, make no changes in our menu. I could not stoop to that. I should not wish Felix to associate ethical ideas with alterations in his diet. And there is no reason why this digestion should be upset because he is celebrating under an allegory the emergence of his spiritual powers into conscious life. You must only expect our usual simple fare, but better a dinner of herbs than a drunken landlady, after all. "'It's very kind,' said Constance, rather breathlessly, "'but I'm afraid I could not come. "'You see, there's Vera.' "'Of course, that was one reason why I invited you. "'The children will amuse one another, "'and besides, I am anxious to see her. "'An adopted child is always an interesting experiment. "'One obtains the results of pure theory, "'unthwarted by that terrible parental instinct "'which seems to militate against all educational reform.' Constance answered, I cannot bring her to this house. It is unthinkable. Once I intended that you should never know of her existence even. I wish to divide my life, to keep her apart. But now I feel, before we go any further, I should like you to understand, to know the truth. Vera is not an adopted child. She is my daughter. 
I came here today determined to tell you that. Oh, do you mean, have you been married? No. Muriel looked at her, first with great surprise and then, to her own intense annoyance, with an uncontrollable horror. In her attitude toward both sin and religion, she had always exhibited that breadth of mind which is the prerogative of well-read and experience. Now she remembered, for the first time after ten years of this intellectual freedom, that her father had been an archdeacon of the established church. Memory, in its most sardonic mood, reminded her of much that she had said in the interval concerning the pure nature of maternity and the unimportance of the sexual tie. But this did not mitigate the dreadfulness of a visitor, worse and intimate, who confessed to the possession of an illegitimate child. Constance went on speaking. She seemed to be talking about it, explaining her point of view. But unconventional opinions on such a subject are only decent in those who have never put them into practice. Muriel did not listen. She was thinking hard, trying to square her natural feelings of propriety with her official theories of life. They refused to adjust themselves, those violent and irrational prejudices which she recognized as arising from the subliminal mind, as representing with a painful accuracy the Victorian ancestors whom she despised, took charge of her consciousness. They said very plainly that it was impossible for Mrs. Vince to continue Miss Tyrell's acquaintance. Presently, without looking at her visitor, she stretched her hand towards the bell, Constance got up and went away. End of chapter 18